Hi, and welcome to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I am your host, Steve Bisson. I'm an author and mental health counselor. Are you curious about therapy? Do you feel there is a lot of mystery about therapy? Do you wonder what your therapist is doing and why? The goal of this podcast is to make therapy and psychology accessible to all by using real language and straight-to-the-point discussions. This podcast wants to remind you to take care of your mental health, just like you would your physical health. Therapy should not be intimidating. It should be a great way to better health. I will demystify what happens in counseling, discuss topics related to mental health, and discussions you can have with your therapist. I also want to introduce psychology in everyday life, as I feel most of our lives are enmeshed in psychology. I want to introduce the subtle and not-so-subtle ways psychology plays a factor in our lives. It will be my own mix of thoughts as well as special guests. So join me on this discovery of therapy and psychology. Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I am Steve Bisson. Thank you again for all your support throughout the last year. And for the first episode of this season, we are going to talk to Jay Ball, who has been part of my podcast ever since I started it. And again, Caitlin Dehe will be joining us for the third season. Very happy to have Caitlin back. We have a few things we want to talk about, including veterans and, again, the impact on law enforcement of different things going on. So I'm hoping that uh, you guys enjoy our conversation. Hi, and welcome to episode 53, or the first episode of season five of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. It's also episode three on YouTube, and uh, Jay and Caitlin did not know that until I just said it right now. So that's really good. You know, I like to surprise my guests with anything, everything. But again, as we've had every single season, and as he said it the last time, he had peaked in season one a little too early. Apparently, there's a lot of people who heard that because it went up really quickly in the season four. So we'll say again that you peaked too early and episode five will be around. But Jay Ball is here and Caitlin Dehe, who has been on for what, our third time now mm-hmm. and has been a great guest. Really enjoyed her insight and hopefully she can hold up me and Jay this time. So because, you know, that's just how things are. Give it my best shot. All right. We'll pretend no one knows who you are, but just a quick intro, Jay, if you wanted to start, just give me a quick intro of you. Uh, yeah. My name's Jay Ball. I'm a uh, sworn police officer in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for a little over 18 years. I'm a veteran of the United States Army back in the mid late 90s, starting to the early 2000s, and currently almost done pursuing my master's in forensic psychology. Welcome. And you work also with the Veterans Court? Yeah, a Veterans Treatment Court in Middlesex County. Yes. Well, as I already know you, I'm not welcoming you, but I should welcome you to the podcast. Caitlin, you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. I'm Caitlin Dehe. I licensed mental health clinician. I currently am working at Westboro Behavioral Health Hospital. I'm doing a partial hospitalization and an intensive outpatient program for first responders. Prior to that, I worked for eight years with advocates in the co-response jail diversion program, which is sort of what led me to want to fill the gap for first responder treatment. So that's where I came from, what brought me here. So thanks for having me. Well, it was great. Also, yesterday we had a get together and I finally met you face to face, which was really nice to meet you. (laughs) This two years, I've been meeting people virtually way too long. So it was great to meet mm-hmm. you yesterday, face-to-face, finally. 
Yeah, agreed. It was a nice event. Thanks for hosting. Ah, yeah. Well, it's everyone else's turn at this point, I think. But anyway, one of the things that you've talked about working at Westboro Behavioral and talking about the IOP and the partial a lot, Caitlin, I kind of figured out a couple of things, but it might be important for maybe our audience to kind of know the difference because I've ran a partial. I used to be a director for a partial and IOP. How would you think it looks different for first and last responders versus just a regular IOP and a partial? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for those unfamiliar with the terms partial and IOP, it's sort of a in-between level of care, right? So we have like outpatient level of care where people go see a therapist once a week, twice a week, once a month, whatever the frequency is. And then there's, of course, inpatient level of care. When there's a safety issue, we'll go and stay somewhere for treatment for a week or two at the most, usually. And then there's this in-between level of care that we call partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient or PHP and IOP. And there, the partial hospitalization is a five-day-a-week treatment program. It's usually seven to eight hours, sort of like going to a job. And it consists of group therapy, some individual therapy, and some medication management. And then the intensive outpatient is sort of a step down from that. So if you can think of the partial as like a step down from inpatient level of care, like you're still going every day, but or five days a week, but you get to go home and be home on weekends. And then the intensive outpatient program is like even a step further down from that, but still sort of more intensive than regular outpatient. So that's three days a week, usually about five hours. And again, group therapy, individual stuff, not typically medication management, but if you had medication management in the partial hospitalization and step down to the IOP, we'll typically follow that until we're able to provide outpatient prescriber to take over that medication management. And I think the important thing about having a separate track for first responders is that Hear a lot of first responders say, most of my stress like isn't job related, right? It's marriage issues or it's stress with kids or it's stuff sort of at home, or maybe it's trauma from military service, whatever that might be. But when we're really sitting down and talking about it, a lot of the things that are difficult for them in terms of being in a relationship, connecting with their kids, things like that it really all does tie back to the job because the job is so different than the job that the average person has, right? And so you're talking about being in a high-stress environment where whether you're a firefighter, EMS, police, doctor, a nurse, you're doing these jobs where your entire shift, it's like, go, go, go. It's high adrenaline. There's trauma that you're seeing on a daily basis. And you go home and having to like interact with your kids and your significant other is a lot harder than it is for people who just have a office job or are working from home doing whatever. It's a different level of needing to sort of disconnect after eight hours or in some first responder cases, double shifts, 24 hours of work. And they come home and their significant other wants help with cooking dinner or help with the kids' homework and the parent, the kids want whatever they need from the parents. And when you've been giving yourself to 
the people you serve as a first responder for that entire shift coming home and needing to do that same thing is like, you never get a chance to turn it off. And so even though first responders are like, well, most of my stress isn't about the job. Yeah, that's true. And the fact that the stress comes from outside of the job, but the reason it's more stressful for those people than for some other people is because the job you have is more stressful. And so I think having that to relate to one another in a group setting with other first responders is something that you won't get in a general track program because it's hard for people to relate to that. I myself thought I understood what first responder work was like. And then I worked as a co-responder clinician and I had no freaking idea before I had that job what it looked like to be a police officer, firefighter, EMS, a nurse, doctors. I had no clue. And then to see it up close and personal, like it's hard to describe what the intensity of that looks like to somebody that doesn't do it or hasn't done it. And so having other people that get that to connect to, to talk about life stress just gives an understanding that can be hard to get from the average track of people who have, I don't want to say regular jobs, but I guess, you know, jobs that aren't first responder jobs. I think it's a great explanation. I appreciate that. And thank you for also clarifying the partial versus uh, intensive outpatient. I'll turn to you, Jay, for a second and ask you, like, one of the things that I kind of like got from the uniqueness of the work sometimes can be hard to relate to other people. Would there be other reasons you think that might keep also from opening up in another track if there wasn't a first responder type of track? As in, say, police officers, for example, not wanting to go for therapy? Is that? Well, more like at not going to an IOP, let's say, at uh, Jane Doe University. I'm just making the name up, but having the general population, maybe the civilian population, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Sometimes the stigma associated with it. Oh, Caitlin and I talked the other day, and uh, it was a discussion, and we've had this discussion before. It just actually came up a few days ago. Massachusetts, we're different than most states, in my opinion. I see buddies of mine that teach, say, for example, mental health first aid, they'll teach in New York. They'll teach the firefighters and their class is very, I don't want to say structured because when you do teach mental health first aid, it is a structured class, but they do things in a certain way where in Massachusetts teaching police officers, I don't want to say it's a skill, but it, it, it's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting, I don't know, is probably a bad word, but I don't know what it is uh, about us. Other states, for example, you mentioned IOPs and, and other treatment plans. I think one-on-one works for a lot of people. A lot of officers I know, a lot of military members I know, they want to go one-on-one. They don't want to be in a group. And I know when I hear that, oh, I had two, I had three, I had four people actually come in and for a group of police officers, it actually surprises me in the state. If you told me in Maryland, you had a group of 20 police officers, I'd be like, all right, yeah, cool. If you told me you had 20 police officers in a room in a group in Massachusetts, and I can't, maybe I should go for my doctorate and study why we're different in this state, but it is. And you know, you could probably put it around the stigma, but I really don't have an explanation for it. Uh, it's just different in this state for some reason. I don't know why it's not. I don't think it's that 
officers think they're better than anyone or uh, they're scared or they're, I just don't have a word to put with it. I mean, maybe Caitlin can her her side from the outside looking in, but I, I just think I, and we've gotten this discussion, Caitlin, and I go, Oh yeah, that's not going to work. You got to do one-on-one. And she goes, I know Jay, I understand this, but I got to run groups. I said, all right, good luck with that. It's different. Like I said, Caitlin, maybe you got a different way. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of thoughts. One, I think like if we're being honest, nobody wants to do group therapy. If, if I was struggling and you wanted to put me in group therapy, I'd kind of probably be like, nah, I'm good. It just, the idea of it is so stigmatized in general, like forgetting about the first responder piece, like group therapy in general is just not something people are psyched about. And we do currently have a group and I do have first responders in, in it and it's small, but it's, it's a group and we're, we're making it happen. But what I keep telling them is the value of having other people to relate to that kind of understand what you're going through that you can't get from individual therapy. Even as a first responder who is trained to do therapy, it's still challenging to relate to exactly what somebody is going through when you're in the therapist role. And so having people around you that really get the the stuff that you have on your plate is invaluable because it helps alleviate, I guess, the sense of isolation, right? Like when you're going through severe depression or anxiety or you're struggling with substance use, that can be a really isolating thing. And having others around you that get it and have, you hear people in group be like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. I felt that same way like a few weeks ago or whatever. And you learn from each other's experiences and how people have dealt with things that you might be dealing with currently. So I think there's that piece in general. And then the other thing, sort of backtracking to the value of having a first responder track versus a general population track is first responders, whether they're police, fire, EMS positions, they're seeing people in their community for whatever, right? Whether it's you're responding to a medical or to a mental health crisis or their patients of yours as a physician, you don't want to be in group therapy with with people who you've arrested or sexually transported on a medical emergency <laughs> seen as a patient in your medical practice. You don't want to be in group therapy with those same people, right? That's a conflict. It's uncom- it would be uncomfortable. Um, and so having the first responder track specific sort of helps alleviate that chance, right? Minimize that chance. It's people that you're not going to be in in therapy with somebody that you transported to the ER a few weeks ago. And so I think that piece helps. And we really tried to be intentional about that. We've staggered the start times and the break times because the groups are running at the same time as our general track, but we've staggered those things specifically so that like first responders aren't running into people in the hallway that they might have interacted in those ways with. So we're trying to be really intentional and thoughtful about how we, how we do it. And there is, there's value in it, especially for the stabilization piece, right? Long-term, it's not a long-term treatment. It's a short-term couple weeks treatment, but it's really for stabilizing whatever the crisis is. And then we can refer to people like you, Steve, and some of your colleagues that I met last night for sort of that more long-term outpatient treatment. And I think that follow-up is so important after an IOP partial, any type of stuff. 
I'm going to add something. And Jay, you're, you're, I'm going to turn to both of you for this too. And I've worked with police officers in different states, not as much as you, Jay, nor do I want to pretend I have the same experience as you. But I got to tell you that what I've found that is particularly different in Massachusetts than, let's say, Vermont, Florida, even New York, is the sarcasm game is pretty strong in Massachusetts. And when there is a group setting, sometimes that sarcasm really kicks in, especially if it's a bunch of other first responders. So that's my personal observation, because I've ran a group, too, for a while with first responders. And it's not that the fact that I ran a group for a year with a first responder is only once a week. But I thought that the sarcasm sometimes kind of like gets a little staggering for some people. And that's just my two cents. I don't know if that resonates to you, Jay, just giving you my opinion. Yeah, Caitlin, what do you say? What's, <laughs> what, what do you say in class? About sarcasm? Yeah. First responders are fluent in sarcasm is what I say. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's different. I'm not sure. Like, it, it's funny you bring up the sarcasm and, and you have, you do have the experience in, in Vermont and other states. One of my best friends is a police officer in Washington state. And to hear sometimes the, the things that they do that are different than Massachusetts. I'm like, wow, you get everyone to do that. Really? <laughs> and then I bring up New York, upstate New York. You get, you get guys to do that. Really? And then we'll bring up like SISM and after action reviews, after a major incident in Massachusetts. And it's not that we, we don't do them, but I joke about it in, in some classes. And I say, yep. All right. We got 20 guys in there. They're there probably because you get paid overtime and everyone's staring at each other, complaining and bitching and moaning that they're there. And everyone's got probably something to say. I'll say if we have 20 in there, 17, I have something to say. I don't say a word to each other. And then on the way out the door, you've got, Hey, you got a second. Hey, you got a second. Hey, you got a second. It's the same thing when Caitlin and I uh, will teach a class. No one says a word and that's great. No one's going to volunteer anything, but whether it's at a break, whether it's on the way out the door, whether it's it, it's awesome to have them come up, but no one wants to do in that group setting. But I do think in Massachusetts where we are pretty sarcastic and maybe some of my buddies in Rhode Island would want to compare states. But other than that, I do think we're sarcastic around here. And obviously, and I always refer to Caitlin's, but it is a coping mechanism. Right. And some of the things what Caitlin was talking originally, I just thought of last night alone in uh, where I work. Nothing crazy happened. And just, for example, typical, we call a family problem when people hear domestic violence. We have something, if there isn't domestic violence, there's no physical you know, contact or anything. That's an argument that married couples or any couples or any person in a relationship go through. But you stand there and I, I sit back now as a supervisor, I sit back and I watch the officers handle it. And I got a husband and a wife, they can't get along. So they call the police. And the husband is there and he's saying he's angry at his wife, but he's like, I don't want her to leave the house. I will go to a hotel. She's there and she's having a problem. And you sit there and this is nothing. This is what we do every day. And like I said, as counselors and therapists yourselves, you you deal with this. So we sit there and I was sitting back and I'm like, what person, what job deals with this? This it's awful. And we all have little conversations and disagreements in our own lives with maybe significant others or loved ones or whatnot. But I sit there and I go, no one got hit. No one verbally abused the point of demeaning, whatever. It's an argument, but it just couldn't be settled. And one person wanted to leave the house. 
that wears on that officer. That officer's in there, could have relationship issues at home. And that just that small amount, I look at that. Another thing, as small as it sounds, and I'm not trying to make excuses or whine, but person, for example, we're having tough times financially, not ourselves, but the, you know, the United States and the world as a whole. And person driving down the street, suspended license, revoked for insurance, pet peeve of mine. Because if someone has revoked registration without insurance, they get an accident, a person they hit or just whatever could happen, they have to pay for their own damage to that car, the, the victim or whatnot. But then you hear the story and I lost my job. Then I decided to take what money I had and go to the casino and I was losing money. And then I started drinking and you hear this on and on and you've got to enforce the law. But as a human being, you feel bad for this person that they're using all the, now by law, you can't let them drive their car with insurance around, but now they've got their car towed and now they have no option to get to work. They have no option to get where they're going. So it's like, most officers right now are thinking and, and, and like, geez, Jay, you serious? You think that much? Yeah, I do. And maybe not when I started, but now I'm like, yeah, because by enforcing that law, and, and we can't let people drive around with insurance, but now their only asset to get to a job, to get to wherever they need to be has been taken away from them and their life's getting worse. Do I lose sleep over it? No. But do I think of it? Yeah. Because, and those are the small things that we can always talk about children dying. We always talk about murders. We can talk about violence. We can talk about car accidents. Those are the easy, I don't want to say easy things, but those are the things that people think of every day. Oh my God, tell me the story. Tell me the story. But it's the simple things. It's the arguments. It's the, it's the people that may not be able to afford to register their car. It may be the refrigerator that doesn't have any food in it at a, at a house with a child in it. Those small things. And just kind of going towards that as stresses for first responders, something I always bring up. In class, I ask everyone in a specific class, tell me where you're from, how long you've been on, are you a veteran, and what did you do before you're a police officer? And I get people that say, I was this, I was a student, I was that. And I had one officer from a, a metro Boston city tell me that she was an office manager, a billing manager. And I use her as a description all the time. And I usually pick on fidelity investments. So I apologize in advance if I make fun of that. I just, just I'm going to try out. to get sponsorship after this. I got right. <laughs> but I said, what's the, and I've had a lot of great answers. I've had butchers in class. I've had people work in grocery stores, uh, clothing stores. She was, like I said, a billing manager. I said, what was the toughest decision you ever made before you were a police officer? And she looks and she's like, I wore high heels to work. What color high heels? And think of that. Her job is important. It, it was a billing Billing for a medical office. That's important, you know. But the toughest decision she had was what heals. And she made it tongue in cheek. She laughed, but it was. Now think of that in, as a police or first responder, even in your own lives as therapists, you know, clinicians. Think of that. Think of what the toughest decision you have to make every day is. It's a heck of a lot tougher than what dress do I wear, what suit do I wear, what tie do I wear? Car accidents, person flees the scene. Yeah, you want to know why someone fled the scene, but also if there's blood at the scene, Jesus, the person get injured. Am I making the right decision? Are people second guessing me? Are people going to, why did I do that? Why did the officer do that? Well, split second decisions, it's easy to sit there the day after and have an hour, two, three, or four and go, geez, why did that officer, firefighter, EMS, or why did that clinician or therapist make that decision? Well, 
I had two seconds to make that decision. I had three seconds to make that decision. I thought I did the best I could, you know, but obviously you've got the second guessing and not all the information that, you know, goes out every day. So those are, those are stresses that people don't think of. Now, and I like how you related it to therapy also, because for therapists, we may not see the same thing as you, but we hear pretty terrific, horrific stories. And sometimes it is like, right, is this sectionable? Is this reportable? Do I like you have to make that decision? And some therapists said, well, you can make it after the session. I'm like, well, no, I think that's unfair. You got to do it right in front of them. I'd rather get you're an a hole right in front of my face than waiting and then being an a hole behind their back, so to speak. So sometimes it that's also like, again, nothing compared to police or first responders. I am not comparing myself to that. But that's the stuff that's really tough. And sometimes I think we underestimate how much therapists and police have a judgment call to make within, like you said, two or three seconds that can make or break sometimes people. And then I was going to bring that up today is that then we get second guessed. Why did you not do this? Or in our particular field in Massachusetts, and I can't speak for murder states, but for us now, domestic violence is a reportable thing that we have to do through HIPAA. And is that domestic violence? Is that not? And if you do, some I, I have my own pet peeves about certain agencies, and I'm going to keep to myself right now and try to be polite. But you report it, and you take a good family, and you screw up their life, like you said, and they have like restraining order over something that maybe they're like, you misunderstood what I meant. And then the other ones, you go, that's eh, not too bad. And then you have injuries to X, Y, Z, or worse. And you're like, ugh. And people don't recognize that for therapists. So I appreciate you recognizing that, uh, Jay. And it's kind of nice to see how soft our friendship has made us, made you overall. But I'm, I'm going to not say that to everyone. You brought it up about also just touching upon it. Like you think of 51A, we're big and bad, we're cops, all this stuff. That box you check on, say, if 51A, family notified. Some people walk away and they're like, oh, I'm final 51A. Did you tell the family? And also, you know, DCF will ask that. Did you tell the family? And you get some people like, no. Or like, no. Tell them because maybe you're, gonna, especially in a small department, you could be the one going with the social workers. You could be the one going with DCF to this house. And they may think, okay, well, it's clear. You know, we'll deal with DCF or, or social services at some point. And, and for those outside of Massachusetts Department of Children and Families, and then you're showing up there, and now I'm not the person taking your child away. That's not my decision, but I'm the one in uniform standing there telling a parent, which another heartbreaking thing is, hand your child, hand your baby over to this stranger, and this stranger who is entrusted by the government is going to bring your child to a foster home for the night or a month or a week or, or, or whatnot. Those are the things like those decisions in front of people. Tell them, hey, listen, I'm filing a 51A. Well, what's a 51A? Explain it to them. This is what I see. I am a mandated reporter. I don't make the decision, but I have to tell this agency for the welfare of these children. And those are tough decisions too. Like I said, everyone talks, oh, murders and drownings and this. These are t- tough decisions. Once again, you all have to make also because you're mandated reporters. And I think of chins also, and I don't know if that's still called the case, but sometimes even the chins, 
like the parent, we really need help. And then you explain what a chins are like, Oh, that's not what I wanted. Sorry. The wheels are in motion. I really can't stop the wheels suddenly. And that causes a lot of friction. And I'm not going to name again, the agency, but agencies who take good families and you're trying to get services and then they kind of like blow it up to bigger than it should be or cases. And again, I don't, I'll turn to you, Caitlin. I'm sure it happens to you too, uh, Jay. Sometimes I'll look at a case like, oh, this is clearly like take the kid away. This is this, you know, clear as day for me. And DCF says, yeah, no findings. It's not, it's fine. And that holding that information going, what the hell is going on? can be very, very difficult for, again, I'll talk as a therapist. I don't want to talk for you for first responders, but for me, it's really a difficult situation. I don't know if you guys relate to that or. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely do. I've had the same experience. I think absolutely having some of those, that information and being like, really, like we're going to do nothing with this, but we're going to do something with this other thing that seems much less significant and severe. Okay. It's hard. It's hard to deal with. And I've worked with officers on cases where they felt the same way, like, or they found out that they get the letter from DCF saying like your 51A was screened out or whatever. And the officers would come up to my desk and be like, are you kidding right now? Like, is this real? I'd be like, I, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think the 51A decision to tell families is hard too, because sometimes telling them make can make the situation at home worse. So it's like that decision too. Like, do we tell them, well, uh, if it's going to make it worse, maybe not. There's so many layers to it. And I think the other thing is one of the things you try to say is like, this doesn't have to be a punitive thing. It can provide you with services. But then there's that piece where you're like, okay, well, that's the hope. That's what we're, we're hoping will happen. But then if it doesn't happen, then it's like, Okay, well, <laughs> sorry that it didn't get you the services that we thought maybe it would. And that can be difficult too. Do you find the same thing for you, Jay, when you're dealing with child in need of services, which is what the CHINS stands for? I didn't explain that properly, so I apologize. Yeah, and you also, um, child requiring assistance is also used now. Thank yeah, you. it's tough. It's it's tough. A parent will have a 15-year-old uh, like an what can you do? And we have strict laws in Massachusetts now. Those with juvenile reform, and not to go on a whole legal side of it, and you know beliefs along that. But it's tough. Some juvenile reform was done. I, I believe some of the laws that were specific to juveniles were unfair, but across the board they were wiped out because of discretion that was or wasn't used on part of some officers. That's neither here nor there. But sometimes all we can do is tell someone is. Um, for example, a missing missing child or a person that they're not a runaway or missing child. They just are not, they're being disobedient to the parents. They went for a walk around the block. Well, you need to arrest them. Well, we can't arrest your kid for walking away. Well, why can't you? They're not listening to me. They're not coming home. Uh, we can't do that. Well, you can you throw them in the cell for 20 minutes? No, we can't do that either. And especially Massachusetts is you really can't hold a child. You have to get them to a, a facility that's approved by the state, but we can say, okay, well, we have, we have something child requiring assistance. Well, what's that mean? Well, it's a non-punitive, well, should be non-punitive way of getting resources for you to help you with your teenager. And, but sometimes, you know, 
probation gets involved because probation uh, juvenile probation does handle it. And you don't know, is that probation probation officer going to work with you? Are they going to provide services or is it going to be a very strict, you know, everyone's different in the job they do. So I think it's also very hard to kind of like the other thing that I find particularly, I'll, I'll talk a little bit of my little experience with co-response or the crisis team. And the parents would ask you, what's going to happen next? And I don't know about you two, but usually my answer is truly, I don't know. I wish I could tell you what's going to be next. And that can be heartbreaking if you got some a kid that definitely needs, you know, has needs that need to be met when a child is out of control, but the parents are clearly not doing their job. I'm trying to be as politically correct as I possibly can here. That's a stressor that's really hard. A lot of, again, you talk about people not seeing a little bit of the work that we do. I know nurses do that too, and I'm not trying to play down doctors and nurses. Don't get me wrong. But the general population doesn't know how it is when people are like, oh, you just took my kid away to what's next. It's not like we're going to Disney World because it's not a Super Bowl. It's like, what the hell are we going to do? And I don't know how you handle that stress. But for me, sometimes that was even the worst stress than talking to the government agency. Yeah. I think of situations where you go to a house for situation A and then all of a sudden situation B and C, uh, <laughs> you know, come along. Okay. I've got this done, but oh my God, there's mold in the refrigerator. It's empty. Um, there's nothing in the cupboards. There's animal feces, possibly human feces on, on, on the ground. And there's a toddler crawling around and they just picked up a, and I'm sorry if I'm freaking anyone else that's listening to this, but these are calls. These are things that happen when we, we as police, fire clinicians in the co-response world go to these houses and you got a, a baby putting up a, a pacifier or binky, whatever you, you know, your terminology is for it in their mouth. And you're sitting there in shock and you're watching and it's totally, I don't want to say normal, but it's, it's standard. And you're like, oh, time out, time out. The, the fridge is open. It's not raining. There's no food. There's mold. There's the feces on the ground. Okay, we got to do something here. Those are stressors because you think, oh my God, I would never, and you don't fault the, the parent for it. Are there some cases you want to get really angry at the parent? Absolutely. But you sit there and like, maybe afterwards, after you take your effect, you sit there and go, oh, I'm so glad that my children are in this situation. Or how, if you don't have children, I've seen officers say, how, how, how does this even happen? Uh, there's multiple reasons for happening, and and but at that time, that's not the correct. It's the correct what's happening at the here and now. Maybe there's counseling, and maybe there's help, and maybe there's all sorts of services that can be provided. But at the moment, you're like, I can't allow this toddler to cr- crawl around where the dog went to the bathroom on the carpet. You know, it sounds horrible, but these are the little things we don't think about that you deal with every day. Yeah, I think to just to add to that, like. Like you said, Jay, those are the things that can be really stressful for first responders, not only because you're like, just because of what it is, but because first responders are also humans. So you have lives outside of first responding. You have relationships, you have kids of your own, maybe nieces or nephews that you're close to, whatever. Like you have a human life outside of being a first responder. And so those things can like, get to you in a visceral way when you're seeing things like that and you're thinking about your your own kid at home or you see a domestic violence case and you're thinking about your own relationship. You know, those things, like you said, are sort of some of the things that 
we don't talk about as much because the trauma, bigger traumas are the things that we really talk about when we talk about first responder mental health. But the problem is, is that it's the trauma and the being a human on top of it, right? Like you have, there's just being a, a human adult comes with challenges, relationships and work and what are we having for dinner every night for the rest of our lives? Like you have to make, you know, like adulting is a thing that can cause stress. And then you, as first responders, you have to do that. And then you have all these other big things like the trauma and the whatever. And then the littler calls that we don't talk about, but clearly are things that can have an impact. And I think that's why we need to keep talking about it and and making it normal for first responders to get support around some of that stuff because it's can it all impacts it's it all comes full circle right well it's, it's not the job that's that's really the source of my stress okay well we talk more and more and more oh yeah well because of work oh right because it's all you they're they're not they're not uh exclusive from one another <laughs> and i think that's important finding your way through therapy caitlin dehe j ball steve Bison. We talked about this on a previous podcast. I think we're, we were all on, but I'll repeat it. It's, sometimes it's not the first trauma. It's the 27th one. Mm-hmm. And I use 27 my, because I think it's sometimes like it's those little things. Like you wonder, you get in your, your vehicle after making that call that you just described, Jay. Those are all real calls. And then you go, wow, I'm going to check on my niece and nephew. Maybe I haven't seen them in a while. And then, oh, crap. I, and then it brings a lot of other stuff and family issues. And what people forget, you said human being. I think that that's the thing is that we have a job, but then we are humans outside of that. And sometimes I think that when, and I'm not blaming any police officers or any first responders, we forget that. It's one of those things that well, I've once worked with someone who had a, her spouse was a, a firefighter. And the spouse came in and she said to him, can you stop talking about the blue baby you held? And like, that's how insensitive you can also get from your family because, you know, that screwed up someone somewhere. And I think that that's the stuff I feel is also hard because how can you explain that to a family member? How can you explain that to people? And it's not a conversation like, again, it's like you said, you know, people, oh, you have a story for me? Who really wants to hear about a fucking blue baby? Happened to me last weekend. Jake, give me a story. I, and my wife knows that I'm not going to answer that question. Or if I do answer that question, I'm going to go, have I got one for you? Mm-hmm. And then I mortify everyone. And, I, and um, I, I will say, I don't know this for a fact, but I heard that I may have aggravated my uncle because I said something and he's like, oh, you want a story? And I was going on a little sleep at a little family gathering. I, I gave him a story. And I think it was my uncle kind of was wringing his hands at the time. Maybe I was wrong, but people noticed it. But that's the thing. Either we don't go to these parties or we don't go to these group events because we don't want to say anything or, okay, you want a story? You know, not everything's an episode of cops or, or, or live PD. The thing I always talk about those shows, you know, live PD. Wait, I got to stop you. Oh, it's, it's, I think it, I thought it was like a law and order criminal intent. Oh yeah. You get me started. That's, that's a four hour <laughs> show we can do later. Get me, the DNA get me test within unraveled. five hours. That's what I, oh, you're getting me all unraveled. But think of when you watch these shows to people like, oh, I watch cops or I watch live PD. Think of when you watch these shows. Have you ever seen a murder? Have you ever seen someone die? 
Have you ever seen, uh, yeah, you may see some disgusting apartments, which, which a person would say disgusting apartments, but think of what you may see there. Oh, and, and people are amazed. Oh, yo, I, I see the officer from Tulsa, uh, Sticks is his name. I can't think of his real name, but he's all over the place. But you don't get to the everyday, the, the story or the call that I'll be like, hey, uh, Caitlin, um, can you go by the side desk? I'm going to send an officer around to grab you. I need you down here now. You know, And Caitlin's not coming to settle a, a standoff, a barricaded person, not going to come help us you know, with a murder suspect. She's coming because we just saw something like, yeah, this is beyond. We need a professional here right now. And those aren't the calls you see on those TV shows, you know, and we've kind of described some of them, you know, with children and, and with, for lack of getting descriptive cleanliness, maybe, or, or just mental health calls, you know, you don't see those as much. Yeah. You see the ones where someone may be running out of traffic, but it's, it's not as overt as that. And that's why there's my pitch for co-response, but that's my pitch. Get me, give me a professional down here. We know, especially in our department, we know our limitations and, on top of knowing our limitations, we know that we can turn to professionals such as Caitlin and, and our, the agency we use. You know, right? And I, and and it, maybe that's a good way to jump back to something that we talked about off air. But you're talking about some police and veterans reaching out more and talking about mental health, and I think that that's part of it too. I feel like no, no, Caitlin. Again, I didn't do it as long as you, so I will not. I never pretend things I don't do. What I found fascinating is half my job sometimes was to sit there and listen to a police officer talk about his story. And I've told you who I used to ride around, around with, Jay, and you know, like, oh, yeah, yes, stories. And yeah, not stories about personal stories, not about the police work, but personal stories. I think that you said, you know, Jay, you're saying that people are reaching out a little more about the mental health. Do you think that we're finally making a dent in the system of the first responder system in regards to that? I'd like to think so. Caitlin and I have, have put out stats before by Blue Help. And do we always talk about their low? I always say, are these high or low? And you know, you always get, well, it's high because of this, but it's low because of underreporting. Right now, officer suicides are down. Do I think the number that they put out there is a true representation even today? No, I don't. But do I think that more officers and first responders are looking for help? Yes. Um, maybe it's because obviously I'm a police officer, but I'm kind of involved in the field a little bit. I talk with Kate and a lot. I talk with you a lot, Steve. Maybe it's because of that. And people, I'd like to think people may trust me and come to me, but I haven't seen an increase in people looking to talk to someone, maybe just for maintenance. But Memorial Day was a tough day for a lot of people, not just Memorial Day of the day, but before and after. It was a tough day for a lot of veterans who may be first responders also. Do I think things are working in 2022 up to? Yeah, I do. Because if I just look back to when I became a cop in 2004, no, I don't think, I, I, I truly don't think there was any reaching out. And you said about stories that you heard in cruises. Well, let's think about it the model that we use at our department started in 2003. There was a study done on it by Doherty Associates in 2004. So we're looking at that area of time where I became a police officer, just kind of catching on. But now we've had 18 plus years since then. One, I think police are better educated, especially in this part of the country. And that's nothing against any other part of the country. I just think a lot of officers, the amount of officers that have social work degrees, that have psychology degrees, 
and not saying that's something you have, but if you look around, master's degrees, it used to be, oh yeah, come home from war, come home from here, go become a police officer, you got a high, high school diploma. And yes, when I became a police officer, I got out of the military at a high school diploma. But now you see younger officers getting on now. And not that I never was a formal education person. I think you learn a lot more outside of a formal education. But I will admit that I've learned a lot of things formally also. That's, that's probably a little convoluted, but, but it is true. I think we're doing a better I think we're seeing things. I think we're learning things. I think we're sharing with each other a little bit more. I have no problem telling stories of mine in, in class. I have no problem telling guys who I work with different things about myself and hope that they open up because I really don't, you know, I don't care telling people stuff. If you've got a problem with it, then you know it's not my problem. It's it's theirs. And I know that's kind of back to that sarcasm and off the cuff kind of thing that we do as police officers, but I have no problem saying that I've I've had issues in the past. Zero. Because I know at the end of the day, I can ask people in different police departments that I know saying, oh yeah, Jay's still that you know, crazy cop. You know, he'll do any, you know, he'll do this, he'll do that. But at the end of the day, things have affected me over the years. So I think we are doing a, a better job. And I say we as in professionals like yourselves, police officers, and anyone helping out. The amount of friends, I know I have circle of friends now, police officers that are into mental health and into different things. It's amazing how many police, I don't think people realize how many police officers actually have got into, I say they've got the social work degrees and I don't think people realize how many police officers actually have PhDs, have, have degrees in psychology and sociology, social work and stuff. Aitlin? I agree. I think even from when I started co-response in 2014, I think it's come a long way. I agree, Steve, I 100% spent many hours in cruisers thinking, wow, <laughs> right? Because, <laughs> because, they, because they're not necessarily talking to professionals, but they know, as a, they know that as a clinician who works for the department, I'm you know, sort of been vetted by the department, like the department did my background check. They sort of trust me at a certain point and they know that I'm a therapist. So they know that they can tell me stuff and that I'll listen. And they also know that I'm not going to go lab in my mouth to people about it right so it's almost like the subconscious thing where like they know that you're there so they just it just all comes out this is one of the things that really made me passionate about first responder work and seeing the gap that there is in first responder treatment across the country but across this area in particular was because of that was because I would sit in cruisers with people and think my gosh like what if this person was getting treatment and what difference could that make? Like it could, and thinking about like job performance and safety and just all of those things is sort of really, you know, and then doing the mental health first aid with Jay and all that is sort of where I, why I ended up here in this new role. So I definitely think we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think of the one that most people refer to around here and no plug, just noting McLean Hospital has a wait list for their first responder. There's a name for it. I can't remember the name of it. Leader program. Thank you very much. But they have a wait list. And mm -hmm. I think that if you told me in 2014 that they're gonna there's going to be a wait list at the leader program, I would have laughed. Mm -hmm. And today we're getting there. So I do see that. I see a lot of first responders come to therapy more often and 
that's the that's the stuff that I think we've done. I, if, I don't want to misquote someone. I think we all know, but police officers are social workers with guns anyway. And I don't want yeah. to misquote anyone we know, so I'm I'm not yeah. going to say the name just in case it's the wrong quote. But yeah. I think that I think a lot of like I've seen a lot of police officers embrace that because I remember going into non-specific departments or non-specific probation or parole offices, and I would be said, "Oh, you're the hug a thug guy." And I haven't heard that term. Like I've had a few new people in the last few years. And when I say that, they're like, what? Someone said that to you. So I've seen that also as a good way to kind of like evolve, but you all laugh because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, I I do think that co-response growing in, in the state and across the country is a huge contributing factor to that because I think it's bringing more awareness to mental health in general and that cops are not mental health professionals. Firefighters are not mental health professionals, but they're the ones responding and responding to these calls and basically being asked to be the mental health professional, right? Like police officers are able in Massachusetts to section somebody to the hospital involuntarily. That's a big decision for a police officer to make when they're not mental health trained, right? So I think having a co-response has really brought this awareness about the amount of mental health calls that first responders are dealing with and that they they needs to be that, that assistance. But then on the other side too, I think stuff that's been happening just across the country in the last couple of years, school shootings, the whatever, And thinking about like the trauma that first responders see every day and how that impacts the mental health, their own mental health. I think the awareness of that is growing as well. And I think that makes a difference. Yeah. You brought up the, it's always a discussion. Police officers can section in Massachusetts. When I worked at a school, I would have social workers who had full power to do that. Look at me and go, you section that person. And I looked at them and I was like, no, I'm not. I'm probably going to get the parent. No, we need to section them. And people I am friends with, and if they listen to this, I'm still your friend. And we've had this discussion, but you want me, the cop, to section this person. I have no problem. If you're harmed to yourself or others, I have no problem filling out the pink paper and sending it to the hospital. I have no problem. As a juvenile, I'm going to look at a little bit more, but you have full power as a social worker to section someone. You want me to do it because why? Well, I don't have that liability. I have the same liability and I'm the one that's really not trained in this. Okay. Are you going to hurt yourself? There was the, the, my favorite question. You know, I always go on this tangent in class. Oh no, I'm not going to hurt myself. I'm going to F and kill myself. You know, I say right. that all the time because yeah, maybe I hurt myself as, you know, non-suicidal self-injury and people say, oh, that, that kid that cuts all over their arms. Well, okay. What are they doing for? Have you looked into why they're doing that? Well, obviously they're trying to hurt themselves. Okay. Well, there's a, there's a fine line between hurting yourselves and are they going to kill themselves? But we're thrust in a role of, and this is kind of where I'm getting to. I am a a, a 1 million percent proponent of co-response. Do I think officers should be trained in, in mental health as we are in Massachusetts? Sure. But we see some of these agencies come into some CIT trainings crisis intervention trainings, especially in this area of the country where we're not, we're different with CIT than they are in the West and and, and the Midwest. And they say all these things. Okay, great. 
It's 5.02 on a Friday night. What do you do? Well, we'll get back to you on Monday morning at 9 o'clock. Well, well, time out, time out, time out. It's Saturday at 8 p.m. What do you do? Well, we'll get back to you. We'll follow up with you. No, it's not following up. I need that. Like I said, I'll throw that out there. I love correspondence. I need that clinician there, or I need further training. Well, my officers need further training to do the right thing because we are in a role of sectioning people. You know, it's easy to say, oh, we do this. We'll be there for you nine to five. Okay. Well, what happens outside those hours? What happens on the weekend? But if I have a clinician there or a clinician available to me in smaller towns, we're lucky. We're a larger jurisdiction where we have clinicians whenever we want them. Smaller towns share one clinician, but they at least have them by phone. Okay. You can't tell me that at six o'clock on a Friday night, we'll call you Monday morning. That doesn't work. I need a clinician on that phone, even if they're four miles away at a department where we're sharing a clinician. At least I know I can rely on them and they have their people, their doctors who they can rely on. Because I don't want to send someone to the hospital involuntarily. Have I done it a lot in my career? Absolutely, for reason and cause. But if I can rely on the professionals, meaning yourself and Caitlin and your colleagues, I'd rather do that. And some of the clinicians obviously have to call the doctor to get that. So let's get this. I think police should have the power to section people. All right. And I won't go off on a tangent. I promise, Steve. I believe that they should because we're there 24 7. But think of this someone like yourselves who are trained, have master's degrees in this, have to call a doctor to send someone to the hospital. It's mind boggling sometimes. I'm glad we have the power. I think it saves lives. I think that we do, but we'll get the calls from the hospital. Oh, you you section this? And you had a doctor at the ER screaming at you. And it's like, what would you like me to do? Well, this person's not presenting any any suicidal tendencies or homicidal tendencies. Okay. But you know what? 20 minutes ago, this is what they said. So you're either believing them, which is fine. Believe them because I know you've got a busy ER and you, you they medically cleared. So now you're giving them this, but you're yelling at me when I've had a split second decision and I've got no one there to help me to make this decision. Right. And you, you know, you're going to board them and that's a problem. And again, we're, we've been talking for an hour again, goes way too fast. But one of the things that I would, I would say to you, and I find this particularly interesting, Jay, is that I remember in 2004, sitting there educating like police officers on how to use a section 12, how pros and cons and stuff like that. Now we're having a bunch of mental health clinicians and social workers who are not able to use a section 12 and turning to police. How screwed up that we have to educate now the social workers and the mental health and the police actually get it. And not again, nothing against the police. Obviously you've known me long enough for that, but it's just, it's when you said that, I'm like, it's a total role reversal. Yeah. It blows my mind. Sometimes it's like, sometimes you wait for that ER doctor to call. And because you know it's kind of hinky, but you know what? At the end of the day, and this is why I want people to understand, yeah, it stinks sometimes we have sex with someone. But when we section someone, we're, we're, and most of the time it's because they, they're dangerous to themselves, we look at it as we're saving their life. Not this big, oh, I saved the life thing because no one's going to give you an award for this. But at the end of the day, the reason I sent you to the hospital is because something made me think, and I have no other backup at that time from a professional like yourselves, at that time saying, this person, if I leave them alone, I'm going to come back. And it, you know, I don't want to get into it, but I'm going to come back and it's not going to be, the, you know, it's going to be a different situation. On that happy note, I think we're going to wrap it up. 
Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> oh, no, I, you know, the one thing I want to say is that th- these are hard conversations. But like I said, if you told me when I started in 04 at the Framingham Police Department that I would, I would now be educating my colleagues on how to use a Section 12 and not rely on the police, I would have said, you're out of your skull. That ain't going to happen. And this is where we're at. So it tells you how far police and first responders have come. And maybe where mental health and social workers have not taken full responsibility for some of the stuff they have to do. And yes, I said that about my colleagues and I would say it to the faces of many people. I have no qualms about that. But next time, I think that what we got to do, and obviously you're invited again, I want to talk more about the veterans court, but I also want to talk about veterans and some of the stuff that's going on between you know, Veterans Day between what's going on in Ukraine and also kind of like the stigma of like trauma because, you know, you're not missing an arm. You're just traumatized and that's less worthy of disability. I think it would be a good conversation. And with tying that to the uh, the treatment court in Framingham, I think that would be a great, great type of uh, thing that would be very interesting because it is first responders, but a lot of military personnel and former military have have another stigma that I feel is very difficult to handle. Yeah. That's a great idea. I agree. So thank you again, guys. And hopefully you don't have to section anyone anytime soon. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thanks guys. (laughs) Well, that concludes episode 53 of finding your way through therapy. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Caitlin. Again, just a great conversation and really talking about trauma, mental health, how things have changed. And it's actually very interesting how things have changed so significantly that we may have to educate the mental health side and no longer the first responder side. But obviously, they'll be back next season. But I always enjoy our conversations, and I want to thank him for that. Episode 54 will be another returning guest that you've heard several times, Pat Rice. Pat and I are going to try to stay on subject again, but I think that people, this is like, been our most popular episode two seasons in a row so pat is very popular we're going to go back to that and i think that what we're going to talk about hopefully is we're going to talk a little bit about spirit guides we're going to talk about shamanistic stuff as well as a little more about near-death experiences because a lot of people are very curious so hopefully we can get back to that but i do hope you join us for that episode then please like subscribe or follow this podcast on your favorite platform A glowing review is always helpful. And as a reminder, this podcast is for information, educational, and entertainment purposes. If you are struggling with a mental health or substance abuse issue, please reach out to a professional counselor or therapist for consultation.